Shortly after giving my life to Christ in college, I had a lot of Christian friends and family members give me books to read, and I was reading up everything I could get my hands on, and one book that I received that made a huge impact in my life early on in my Christian life was a biography on the life of Jim Elliott. For those of you all not familiar with uh, Jim Elliott, he was a missionary in the 1950s in Ecuador, and he and a group of his missionary friends, and I believe we have a picture up on the screen of them, he and a group of his missionary friends wanted to take the gospel to a group of people known as the Alcas. And this group had a reputation for being an extremely violent and merciless group of people, so much so that many in the surrounding areas did not interact with this group very much at all. But Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley attempted to take God's gospel to this people group, and as a result, they lost their lives. They were killed by a few warriors from this people group. They laid their life down for the gospel. And though this story had a sad beginning, it has a glorious end. It's an amazing story because... Later on, many of their wives, instead of leaving the mission field, chose, along with other missionaries, to take the gospel to the Alcas once more. And they ended up ministering to some of the very men who had killed their husbands. Many of them came to Christ. It's an amazing story. And I remember reading Jim Elliott's Biography and reading a, a, a journal written by him and uh, uh, reading about the story of their wives and their commitment to the Lord and reading quotes from Elliot like he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And as I'm reading these things, I remember the Spirit of God really doing a work on me, dealing with me on whether or not I had a heart like his for the lost. Whether or not I had a desire like his to make Christ known and whether or not I was willing, like him, to pay the price and to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ. And at that moment, when thinking on those questions, I began to do what most people do. I began to make excuses and look for exceptions. I remember thinking to myself, well, not everyone's called to do what Jim Elliott did. Not everyone is called to go to Ecuador and die a martyr's death. And yet, though that's true, you know what I've discovered over the years as I've read the Bible through again and again? Though not everyone is going to suffer like these men and lay their life down for the cause of Christ, Scripture is clear that we are all called to go out like they did and make Christ known where he is not known. We are all called to be his witnesses. We're all called to grow in godliness and reach that level of maturity where we are willing to make that sacrifice if the opportunity 
were to present itself to us. We are called to get to the point in our spiritual life where we, like Elliot and the others, desire to see the lost come to saving faith and we need to be continually growing until we get to the point where we are willing, if it be God's will, to lay it all down for the cause of Christ. And some of you hear that and say, that's way too radical. Well, you know what I say? That's way too biblical. It is. And folks, when you begin to move in this direction, when you get to the point where you're faithfully sharing Christ on a consistent basis and have this great desire to see the lost come to know him and trust in him alone for salvation, when, when you get to this point, which by the way, you need to be striving to get there. You should all be moving in this direction. And when you do one thing you can be guaranteed of is that you are going to experience kickback from the world. No matter who you are, no matter where you are. Now, it may not be what Elliot and the others experience at the hands of the Alcas, but when you're bold for Christ, like we talked about last week, and when you take a stand for him, and you're faithful to do what God has called you to do and share the message he's called you to share, the world is not going to like it. And it's going to push back. You know why? Because God's ways and his gospel are counter to the ways and the teachings of the world. Nathaniel read for us earlier from John 15. Listen to verse 19 again. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying here, because I've chosen you out of the world to be my witnesses to the world, when you're faithful in doing what I've called you to do, the world is going to hate you for that. It's going to push back. You confront the world with God's gospel. You're going to get kickback from the world. That's just the facts of the matter, folks. Paul said it like this. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a great way to test yourself to see if you're being faithful to do what God has called you to do. Paul makes it clear, 2 Timothy 3, Jesus makes it clear, John 15, that if you live the life God has called you to live, you're going to butt heads with the world. Now, you shouldn't purposefully go out and pick fights with people. That's not what I'm talking about. We talked about that last week. You shouldn't go out of your way to try to offend someone, but when you intentionally share the truth of God's gospel, when you do that, no matter how you sugarcoat it, You're going to collide with the world. Now, some will respond in repentance and faith, right? We talked about that. The gospel does draw some, but it repels many others. Others will reject you and oppose you and your message. That's what Peter and John experience in Acts chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. Acts chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed for those of you all who have missed the past couple of sermons. Two weeks ago, 
we are in the first part of Acts chapter 3. And in the first part of this chapter, we're told Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. And while they're on their way in, they're stopped by a lame beggar outside of the temple. And he asks them for money. Peter says, don't have silver and gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And Luke tells us that at that very moment, this man gets strength for the first time in his ankles and feet and jumps up and he goes into the temple walking and jumping and praising God. Well, we said those in the temple, they knew this lame beggar very well, right? Probably passed him three times a day for years while going into the temple and in, in, in praying. And we're told that when they see him completely healed, they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to this man. So immediately, prayer service is over. They go out to find Peter and John, and they find them in the courtyard of the temple in a place known as Solomon's Portico, also known as Solomon's Porch. And when they get there, we're told this lame man is clinging to Peter and John, and at that point, when Peter's looking over the crowd, we're told he begins to preach to them. And last week, we looked at Peter's sermon. We talked about the fact that he preaches a similar message in Acts 3 as he preaches in Acts 2. He preaches about Christ and him crucified. They wanted to know how this man was healed. Peter says, Jesus did it. He says, it's the same Jesus that was sent to us by the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the same Jesus you delivered over to be crucified, the holy, the righteous one, the author of life, whose life you traded for the life of a murderer. Peter tells them, Jesus healed this man. He was God's man. He was God's Messiah. And you sinned greatly against God and against his son by putting him to death. But he also tells them, though that's the case, God has raised him to life again. So Peter, he addresses their sin. Then he moves on and he talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he calls for them to turn from their sin and turn back and trust in the risen Christ. He tells them in verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Well, we learn in chapter 4, That though many hear Peter's words and believe, though many respond in repentance and faith, there are others who respond in a completely different way, in a negative way. There are some who respond with persecution. Like I said a moment ago, when we're faithful to do what God has called us to do, when you submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, commit yourself to be a witness for Him, though some will respond favorably to your message and ministry there will be many who will not and that's what we see here in acts chapter 4 so what we're going to do for the rest of the morning is this we're going to examine this opposition here and we're going to look to the example of these faithful disciples to know how we are to respond how we are to deal with persecution when it comes number one first point on how to handle persecution Be ready for it. Be ready for it. When persecution comes, be ready for it. Don't be surprised when it comes, but be ready when it does. Peter and John, listen, they knew the consequences of preaching Christ in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem, out in the open, for everyone to see. They knew it would be costly. 
They had seen what had happened to Christ at the hands of the Jews, and they knew simply mentioning his name could land them in a world of trouble. But they were faithful, you see. They had a crowd of Jews who had sought them out to hear what they had to say. So Peter and John put their life on the line and they took that opportunity to preach Christ to them. But they knew the risk was great, but they preached Christ anyways. And look what happened as a result. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now notice the phrase at the end of verse 1 where it says, the Sadducees came upon them. That phrase, came upon them, does not mean they were just strolling through the temple and they just hear somebody preaching, so they stop by to hear what he has to say. Now, apparently, they had been notified in some way, and this phrase means they swooped in, rushed in intentionally, and grabbed them up as soon as they could. We're told they were greatly annoyed. They despised what Peter and John were doing, so they snatched them up and they arrested them. Why? Well, we're told that they were Sadducees. The Sadducees in this day were a religious and political group. They were the religious liberals of the day. They were different from the Pharisees in that way. For example, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in angels or demons, future rewards or an afterlife. And they also believed that God was not ultimately calling the shots in life. But it was up to man to kind of carve out his own way. They believed that man was ultimately the master of his own faith, the captain of his own ship. They believed that because this life is all there is, One needs to grab hold of as much power and influence as possible and do whatever it takes to maintain that power and influence. That's why the Sadducees often did Rome's bidding. They attempted to be on friendly terms with them so that they could stay in power in Israel because that's what was most important to them was holding on to this power. That's also why they were opposed to Jesus. They thought the more people following Jesus in Israel is bad news for us, so we got to stop this guy. And they thought that they did. But notice, here in Acts 4, they find Peter and John preaching Christ in the courtyard of the temple, and they're greatly annoyed because they have this big crowd around them who we learn in Acts 4 respond favorably to this message. They're preaching that man is sinful, in need of Christ, and that Christ, though crucified, was resurrected, was raised to life. All of these teachings were counter to the teachings of the Sadducees. And so, for all of those reasons, they're greatly annoyed at them, so much so that they snatch these guys up as fast as they can and put them in prison. Peter and John knew that this was a possibility. That's why when Jesus was arrested, Peter tried to blend in with the crowd around a charcoal fire and denied Christ three times while Jesus is being led away to be tried and be crucified. He knew that standing for Christ was great. The cost was great. 
But here we see in Acts chapter 4, that isn't phase here, John. Why? What's changed? They've changed, haven't they? They've been changed from the inside out. They now know Christ is worth it. They also believe that the fruits from their message was much more precious than their own lives. And, and notice the fruit that comes from Peter's sermon. Look at Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Notice that's just the men who came. There could have been five to 7,000 more women and Children, that's just the number we're given here of the men that came. And notice this too, this is the last time a number is given. After that, the church grew so fast, continued to just explode exponentially that it got past the point of keeping an accurate count. Now, I guarantee you, if you spoke to Peter and John after that response, they would say, whatever we have to suffer... For this is worth it. Now, you may not agree with that. But you know what? God tells us in his word that it is. It always is. Get this. Confronting the world so that God may do his work is worth the risk. Let me say that again. Confronting the world so that God may do his work is worth the risk. Some say, well, I may lose my job. I may lose a friend. I may get made fun of by classmates or by a professor. Listen, folks, it's worth it. Now, I'm not saying you're to be a lousy employee or a lousy student, spend all your time preaching and nothing else. You need to reread Ephesians 6. Remember when we were there? Paul says we're to put in an honest day's work for a day's pay we're to submit to those in authority over us but wherever you are in the world people ought to know that you stand for christ i had a guy come in this week from ywam and tyler he was telling me about the work they're doing in the 1040 window people who are being persecuted and and they have to worry about going to church every day with the you know, they have to worry about suicide bombs going off. And he showed me an incredible video after a suicide bombing outside of the church of the people in the church worshiping God. It was amazing. We, we got a lot less to worry about here, don't we? But we're to be bold, just as they are. The second way to prepare for persecution is by being filled with the Spirit. So be ready for it. Number two, be filled with the Spirit. Notice here that when Peter and John are arrested, we're not told they fight back, are we? We're not told they resist in any way, but we learn they go willingly into custody. They submit to the authorities without any resistance, and they trust in God. They knew that they had been faithful to do what God had called for them to do, and they knew that their arrest then was in God's hands. They were faithful to proclaim his message. They were submissive to the arrest, assuming that their arrest had been brought about because of their message, and they believed that God was behind it all. They truly believed. 
believe they were exactly where God wanted them to be. Listen to this. They were so in tune with the Holy Spirit. They were so filled with the Spirit that when they're arrested for proclaiming God's message, they knew that was just God giving them another opportunity to preach his gospel. And do you know how I know that? Because that's the first thing they do when given the chance. Look at verses 5 through 10. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. Remember these two guys? Christ stood before them, right? Before he was crucified. Luke says, And John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had set them in the midst... They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. So notice what we have here. Peter and John have been arrested, and we're told that they bring them before the high priestly family, the big wigs in Jerusalem, and they ask, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now, do you see what God's done right here? After opening a door for Peter to preach in the courtyard of the temple, God has now given him a wonderful opportunity to preach Christ before the Sanhedrin. Here we have another example of Satan overdoing it. You know, he does this a lot. He, he's been hard at work alongside these wicked Sadducees to apprehend Peter and John to shut them up. And through this act of persecution, what God does is he opens up an avenue for Christ to be preached amongst this influential group of Jews, an opportunity that would not have opened itself up to them any other way. Peter and John were just faithfully doing what God had called them to do. They were arrested. They went away willingly. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. And then they're given this wonderful invitation. After they're arrested and brought before this influential group of Jews, they're asked, by what authority and by what power are you healing and teaching people like you do? You think Peter tells them? You better believe it. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, what's the next phrase? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember we said when we were in Ephesians 5, being filled with the Holy Spirit means being under the influence of, under the control of, in submission to the Holy Spirit. So Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, does what? He preaches. Now get, get this, folks, this is key. Being filled with the Holy Spirit will result in you sharing God's message of redemption. Now, there are other results that come from being spirit-filled, and we talked about those in Ephesians 5. But we learn in Acts 2, we learn in Acts 4, that spirit-filled people, people under the guidance and direction and influence of the Holy Spirit, boldly share God's message whenever the opportunity presents itself. So you want to know if you're spirit-filled? Want to know whether or not you're being guided 
whether or not you're being directed by the Holy Spirit, are you boldly and unapologetically sharing his message when the opportunity presents itself to you? Or is your fear of rejection, of offending someone, causing you to remain silent? Or is it causing you to alter his message so that it does not offend? As believers, God calls for us to boldly proclaim the truth of his message and then trust in the Spirit of God, his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to use us the people of God preaching and teaching the word of God to bring people to saving faith so that his kingdom advances. Peter and John did this. They were faithful when opposition came. They didn't run and hide. They didn't shrink back. They expected it. They were submissive to it. They were spirit-filled. And because they were, they got a wonderful opportunity to share God's gospel in front of this group of influential Jewish leaders. Which brings us to our third and final point here. The third way to prepare for persecution is this. Boldly use every opportunity for God. Be ready for it. Be filled with the Spirit. And boldly use every opportunity for God. Look at Peter's message again, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved wow what a powerful message here notice again peter filled with the holy spirit he takes this opportunity to preach an even bolder message than he does in the courtyard of the temple i mean his life could be on the line here that doesn't phase peter at all he preaches christ even bolder than before and though this sermon is only 92 greek words here it has it all this message has it all i love the way peter begins he says, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, I love that, yeah. We're on trial for doing this good thing, okay. He says, if we're on trial today doing this great deed, I'll tell you in whose name and whose power we do it. Peter is establishing the fact that their persecution, this arrest and trial is unjust, same as it was with Jesus and then Peter goes on to talk about man's sin and God's salvation. He makes it clear here once again that they are all sinners in need of salvation. They have rejected God's man, his Messiah, and they are responsible for this. They are responsible for killing the Lord of glory. But he also tells them, though that's the case, God has made a way for you to be forgiven and made right with God once again. And guess what way that is? It's through the one you've rejected and killed. He tells them, though you rejected and killed God's man, God raised him up. 
And this Jesus of Nazareth is the reason why this crippled man outside the temple was healed. And he is the only way for any of you to be healed spiritually because there is salvation in no one else but him. Folks, that's boldness right there on display. Peter is telling this group of Jews who viewed themselves as being loved and favored by God because they had these important positions in the city. He tells them, you guys have made a mess of your belief system because you've crucified God's man. You have killed his Messiah. You have rejected the cornerstone, which, by the way, what he's saying there is, he's saying, he's making the point, you guys have done away with the one who is most important, the only one who can save the lost from sin and death. Folks, when Peter was given an opportunity to share God's gospel, share God's gospel, he did. He took advantage of it. He took every opportunity to be bold for God. And we learn a vital lesson here from Peter and John. It's a lesson we learn all throughout God's word. Don't waste opportunities. Grab every opportunity you can for, for God and his gospel. I was reminded last night of how brief life is. Had a cousin of mine, or husband, passed away too young of cancer and it just dawned on me this this life is fleeting we don't have very many opportunities left and we got to grab hold of every opportunity we can for god and his gospel we must not neglect an opportunity to be bold for christ we cannot hold back when sharing his message either we don't need to alter it water it down but we need to be faithful to share it well, let me ask you this. Do you think God was pleased with Peter's message here? You bet he was. Now, this message wasn't politically correct. It was offensive to those in the audience. He tells them, you guys are sinners. Well, that's a big no-no in our society, isn't it? You've got to love everybody and tell everybody they're wonderful. No, he says, you guys are sinners. You've messed up. You've killed God's Messiah. You have rejected and killed the one who is most important. You have rejected and killed the only one with the ability to save you from your sin and from God's judgment. That's an offensive message. Folks, Acts 4.12 offends a lot of people. People hate hearing that there's only one way to God through Jesus, but that is what God has told us clearly in his word. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. Jesus said this of himself, did he not? John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Folks, that message offends people, but we mustn't shy away from that truth because that's what people need most. They need Christ. When asked, we must share it. When given the opportunity, we must teach it. That's the message that God has given to us. And Peter didn't squander this opportunity. He did not alter God's message. Neither should we. Peter didn't waste opportunities for God, but instead he preached the truth of God's message with boldness, and we're to do the same. 
We're going to stop here this morning. Next week, we're going to discuss four other principles that we learn here from Peter and John on how to deal with persecution. But before we close today, I want to end this morning by taking advantage of the opportunity God's given me once again. Blessed to have this opportunity each and every week. And I too don't want to squander the opportunities that I have to urge those of you in here this morning who are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation to do so. I want to ask you this this morning. Who are you trusting in this morning? Be honest with yourself. Where does your hope lie? Is it in yourself? In your efforts, in your good deeds, in your intelligence, in material things, maybe in another system of belief other than Christianity. Where does your hope lie? Who are you trusting in this morning? God tells us very clearly in his word, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man and its end is the way of death. And again, Peter tells us, Acts 4, 12, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God, folks, has given us one person, one man, one name, one hope, and that is Jesus. And if you're here today and you're trusting in anyone or anything other than him, God is clear that that is the way of death. So I urge you today, plead with you if this is you if i'm talking to you if your trust is in anyone other than jesus turn from that sin turn from your false and wicked ways and turn to jesus and be saved if you've never made that decision pray you would before you leave here this morning let's pray